Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. Uh, this week I will be interviewing Dr. Gavin Ortland, and he just recently wrote a new book called Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, Ancient Wisdom for Current Controversy. So I'd recommend uh, anyone to go out and buy that book from InterVarsity Press. Um, Dr. Ortland is a very careful reader of Augustine and his many works um, on creation, including uh, works that he wrote that are just that have stuff in it about his understanding of creation, um, like City of God and Confessions. But in addition to all uh, his what three different commentaries that he wrote on the book, so. In this conversation, I mostly ask him questions that are related to the book and related to Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, but it is not specifically a recap of the book itself. So um, I, I say that only to say you should definitely uh, listen to this podcast as kind of a supplement to the book, but I don't want it to be in place of someone actually engaging with uh, Dr. Orland's words and, and the book itself, or even Augustine himself. So hopefully all of this will be an encouragement to go back and reread the Church Fathers, because I learned uh, from from my conversation with Dr. Ortland that he really does have a passion for, for retrieval and for modern Protestants and evangelicals to go back, read the Church Fathers, and recognize in them their own heritage and see ways in which they can help us think through questions that we have. Um, and, and this book is really his kind of retrieval for the doctrine of creation. So the book goes into more depth um, about questions of seven-day creationism and evolution and the, those sorts of things. Uh, that actually never comes up in this conversation, so if you're looking for uh, those kinds of questions, go to the book. This is mostly about how the, the broader picture, the bigger picture um, and uh, of creation, and so I hope that that, that will be helpful um, and that this can kind of all, all work in tandem. Uh, so thank you for listening, um, and uh, please check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, um, leave us a review on iTunes that'll help other people find the podcast. Um, and uh, we've had some uh, great comments. Uh, Ross Tweel uh, on Facebook has given us some great comments. So we, we've appreciated uh, engaging with our listeners there. So please do uh, let us know uh, w what kind of questions you have. If there's anybody you'd like to have us interview or that sort of thing, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Well, um, I'll go ahead and give you um, sort of an introduction, um, and then we'll just sort of launch right into the um, into the content of the book, some of the questions. I know we won't be able to get to all of them, but I do, I want to respect your time as well. Um, so uh, today um, in the on the podcast, uh, we have Dr. Gavin Ortland, or Reverend Dr. Gavin Ortland, I guess. Uh, so uh, Dr. Ortland is both a pastor and an author, um, has written several books. We were just talking about one of them. Uh, it's on uh, um, retrieval for evangelicals, um, so theological retrieval for evangelicals, so how to read some of the church fathers and mothers and take them into sort of a Protestant, uh, contemporary Protestant um, theology. And that's also what he does in this book that we're here to talk about more, which is uh, on Augustine and his doctrine of creation and how that can sort of help uh, evangelicals think through um, their doctrine of creation. Um, so Dr. Ortland studied at uh, Fuller. I think you did your PhD under Oliver Crisp, or at least with his uh, some of his guidance. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, he was my supervisor. Okay. Very good. Well, um, so let's just start off. Uh, you know what? What is sort of your main uh, thesis and your main hope for this uh, this book? Uh, like, what were you trying to um, offer for for evangelicals as they think about creation and and Augustine as a kind of guide? Mm -hmm. Well, my observation and my feeling has been that evangelicals really don't do all that well at the doctrine of creation. Uh, to to put it kind of bluntly. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's an incredibly controversial doctrine, and it's very divisive. But at the same time, it seems as though we don't necessarily have a very deep doctrine of creation. And we tend to focus just on the controversial issues about how old is the world? How, what do we do with questions of evolution and things like that? And so um, just in general, I'm very interested in the doctrine of creation, very interested in how we can deepen in our thinking on that doctrine. And I found Augustine to be such a helpful dialogue partner. You know, he's facing things from a different context in the late 4th century, early 5th century. There's different questions on the table for him. 
And so this book is just a retrieval of Augustine, and it's diving in. There's some chapters that are basically about how Augustine can introduce some new questions for us. And then there's other chapters where I use Augustine as a conversation partner for some of the, the topics that are controversial. And so the hope is that Augustine can just help us be a good dialogue partner to help us deepen in certain ways, and then also maybe uh, find some ways forward and, and make some progress on some of the contested issues. Very good. Well, you did your dissertation on Anselm, uh, if I have looked that up correctly. Um, so you move backwards in time a little bit to go to Augustine. Um, so wh why the move backwards uh, for Augustine for this specific project? And I, I guess, I, you know, I know uh, Anselm more from the Proslogion and I guess the Monologion and, and Cordeus Homo, but, uh, or, you, you know, why God became man. I guess he doesn't really have as much on the creation. So that might be one reason, but what, why, why Augustine and, and why this move back earlier in time? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm fascinated in the Church Fathers. Um, I'm especially fascinated in Augustine. I just think of him as such a deep thinker and a deep feeler and someone whose thought uh, has, has so much to offer today. But especially when it comes to creation, I've just found him a fascinating dialogue partner. Part of that is um, his own testimony. You know, he became a Manichaean for about 10 years. Part of what helped him come back to the faith was hearing Ambrose preach on Genesis 1 and uh, preaching in a more symbolical way, a more allegorical way on Genesis 1. And he realized, oh, the interpretation of Genesis 1 that the Manichaeans uh, kind of derided as unsophisticated isn't the only way that the Christians read this text. And that was a helpful uh, piece of what uh, drew him back to orthodoxy. And then all the rest of his life, you know, he writes about five different commentaries on Genesis, uh, the early chapters in Genesis, if you include the sections of Confessions and City of God. And so he's, he's wrestling with these chapters all the rest of his life. He's very sensitive to the Manichaean criticisms. So his uh, approach to creation, his approach to Genesis has a kind of philosophical sensitivity, and even today we might call it an apologetics sensitivity. He's trying to defend the scripture. Um, so it's a very important doctrine to him, and he has a lot to say about it. And uh, I've just, again, found that uh, some of the particular answers he provides are relevant today. I mean, just the very struggle that he went through in um, rejecting the Christian faith because he felt that Genesis 1 was uh, not intellectually credible. I actually think that's an extremely common scenario today. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the challenges today, of course, would not be from a, a, Manichaean, uh, a Manichaean criticism. But um, nonetheless, uh, he's, he's very relevant to the discussions that are happening today in creation. Um, so I, I think we've got a lot to learn from him. Yeah, and one of the things that I found most um, helpful and maybe sort of surprising when I got to your book was your emphasis on the sort of, I guess we could say the more global or broader sense in which the doctrine of creation is important. That is to say, you sort of push off even the questions not only directly of evolution, but even the question of original sin. You do discuss those in the book, but you you put those more towards the end. And you're, what you're trying to recover is the, the sort of sense of awe that Augustine has before creation. Um, at one point uh, at the, in the conclusion, you talk about uh, the emotional doctrine of co creation, which I think is a, it was an interesting and helpful way to frame it. Um, so I, th I think maybe, uh, could you talk a little bit about like how Augustine um, has so much uh, that he wants to learn from creation and how he, that too can be helpful for evangelicals who, like you say, want to rush to evolution or even to trying to explain original sin. And Augustine might say, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. There's a lot more to learn here before we even get to those uh, uh, questions, which might to some people seem more pertinent, uh, but in fact, like kind of maybe cloud our views a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that was certainly one of the main things that I have gotten from Augustine is, you know, we tend to think of creation as just sort of setting the table for other aspects of theology. But for Augustine, 
creation makes a, a huge contribution to theology um, just across the board. So, and I've often thought that in the church, sometimes we think more about being a sinner or being uh, redeemed than we do about just being a creature and what it means that we are creatures and we are human beings. Uh, and Augustine, uh, the, to me, this comes out most in the confessions where a lot of people look at the confessions and they say, you know, here's this intensely personal and emotional uh, autobiography of sorts. And yet in the final three chapters, um, he goes to Genesis 1 and it becomes much more abstract and theoretical. And, and some people have even criticized Augustine for that. In fact, there's a long tradition of criticism saying, basically, he doesn't know how to write a book. <laughs> and he just, you know, <laughs> takes this uh, random turn at the end of the confessions. But I actually think there's a method to the confessions. And the whole vision that Augustine has for creation is that it's imbued with a sense of unrest. And although creation is good, it is not yet perfect. It's not yet arrived in its destination. And he talks about creation um, kind of clinging to God and longing to share in God's immutability, which means his God does not change uh, in the way that the angels share in that. And um, so creation is emotional for Augustine because um, it, you know, that, that longing that you see at the beginning of the confessions, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That really is, is one part of his whole vision of all of physical reality. He thinks the whole universe is imbued with that restlessness. And he's constantly going back to this motif of the Sabbath rest as a motif of heaven, which is why the confessions ends as it does. He's applying his own journey up to the entire creation and saying all of creation is longing to find its rest, which it has not yet found. And so um, I, I just find that fascinating. And um, certainly it enlarges the doctrine of creation in some ways, because um, Augustine would say that even apart from the entrance of sin and evil, uh, created uh, reality has this kind of uh, 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 lack you know, it's, it's, it's leaning towards God, longing to share in his immutability. And um, so then that plays out for how sin and how redemption are understood in his thought. So it's, to me, just a helpful widening angle to consider some of the greater implications of, of creation. Not that I would necessarily say we have to agree with Augustine and all the particulars of how he cashes that out, but it's certainly a, a fascinating vision of creation to consider, and, and certainly deeper than a lot of times Christians think about creation today. Um, one thing that you bring out, uh, I think it's in chapter four, is you talk about the notion of animal death, and then you bring out some of the ways in which Augustine um, describes uh, what the, the place of created things, created beings, um, and and that sort of thing. What what are all those for? And some might be surprised uh, that, that Augustine spends that much time um, on uh, bugs and beasts and, and these sort of things of the natural world. And, and as it reminds me as I was reading of Jonathan Edwards, who was also very fascinated by the physical and natural world. Um, so, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that, that importance for Augustine, and maybe even uh, in my mind, like you might be surprised uh, that Augustine cares that much about the physical world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was fascinating to read through uh, his various commentaries on Genesis. And then I looked a lot at various letters and sermons and some of his other uh theological works as well. And I, I, chapter four in the book is just full of these quotes, so many of which are, are just funny <laughs> because he's, he's going on and on about insects and about other animals that you wouldn't expect would inspire praise. But, you know, one passage in the confessions, he'll be talking, kind of be berating himself that he's not uh, more quick to praise God for watching the lizards eat the spiders outside of his home. And he's saying, you know, why are you not quicker to praise God for these things? You know, you should be immediately, you know, lifting your heart up in worship that you see these uh, spiders getting eaten by the lizards. And there's so many passages like that. He talks about beetles. He talks about maggots. He talks about all these insects that we would find. 
and you know part of the 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 reason is the the Manichaeans were of course uh, criticizing uh, insects as well as carnivorous animals like tigers or crocodiles, and they were saying that these are imperfections in God's creation that they show that God's creation is not good, as Genesis one teaches, and Augustine's very sensitive to that, and his response to that is not to blame predatory behavior in the animal kingdom to uh, on on the human fall. He says God created these animals to uh, uh, give us spiritual lessons, and we should learn things from them. So he doesn't think animal death is a bad thing. He thinks it's a good thing that we can learn from. And he's very strong in trying to humble and kind of denounce the, the criticism of animal death. He uses the metaphor of a mechanics workshop. And he says, you know, imagine a layperson walks into the workshop and there's all these instruments and machines and they cut their arm on one of the machines as they walk by because they're being careless. And he says, it would be foolish and arrogant for this person to say that the machine is a bad machine or is evil simply because it hurt him, because he doesn't know all that it does and its reason for existing. And Augustine says in the same way, we shouldn't sit in judgment on the fact that crocodiles and tigers can eat us. That's not evil. Um, we don't see the larger purpose that God has in creating these animals. And so he's, he's trying to rebuke a kind of self-referential judgment about those animals. And again, that's relevant to the current, current questions of theodicy, current understandings of creation. And it's also just fascinating the way he then kind of goes from there to cash out a, a, his own theodicy and his own vision of why God made the world in, as, as he did. Um, so, but it is funny just how, how fascinating he, you can tell he's, he's genuinely interested in all these little creatures that God has made. And, uh, you know, uh, not just spiders and lizards, but all kinds of different insects. Um, so it's, it's kind of fascinating that such a, uh, deep theologian would spend so much time thinking about particular animals like that. Yeah, and I, when I was reading it, I was thinking, uh, as I have been a lot lately, there's a you know a revived interest in sort of Christian Platonism and classical theism, and a kind of recovery of that uh, tradition, especially among evangelicals. Uh, but but it also always raises these concerns, like where you know sometimes Augustine is faulted for being too Platonist. That is, he may be too concerned with the soul, um, and so I, I sort of also see your book not only as helpful for the conversations about uh, evolution and uh, and relationship to science in general, but even as a corrective for Ag people who study Augustine, uh, because you show that that uh, that's not a fair criticism of Augustine. Maybe um, you know. So how would you respond though to someone who says, uh, "Yeah, I mean, Augustine, he's a Platonist, uh, so he prefers the soul to the body. Uh, so you know, therefore, he's not really helpful for um, someone who's in the biblical tradition who knows that that the body is good." Um, you know, how, how do you, how do you balance sort of, I mean, of course, Augustine has Platonist influences, mm -hmm. uh, but, but how does he balance those and how do you balance those, um, as we try to figure out what we can keep from Augustine and maybe what we can't? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'll give a brief thought on this and I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts on it too at some point, but I, in general, I think the, the, the criticism of Augustine is Platonist. Is such an easy one to make in in the in the abstract and in, in a general way, um, and yet it often I think will lead to caricature unless it's followed up with specifics. You know, specific passages, claims. It's hard to prove influence in some cases, and even where that influence is there, it's sometimes what is what what is meant by Platonism by people today is a little different from how it actually plays out for Augustine. Now, I do, as you say, there's a huge Platonist uh, influence on Augustine. I tend to think, and I have my own worries about Augustine's theology on many points. I mean, I do think Augustine's theology of sexuality, um, he is very much uh, kind of anti-sexuality in some ways. Um, but I, I don't think he's anti-the body. And I don't see that. I think when, when Augustine is, or, or just anti-physical matter, you know, as much, I think when Augustine is defending the goodness of creation, 
you see a different strand of his thought where he he wouldn't fit the kind of neat and easy caricature of what Platonism often uh, connotes for people. So I think with a matter like this, it often needs to get into the details. But in general, I'd say Augustine has a surprisingly high view of physical creation. And it all, again, plays into his, his larger vision of uh, work and then rest and creation being made with this longing for rest. And one day it will be caught up into that rest. And uh, that, that uh, act will not involve the removal of physicality. It will be physical creation that is perfected and brought into that uh, sort of union with God's immutability. So I don't think Augustine fits easy caricatures, and, and it's much easier sometimes to make those claims than it is to kind of bear them out with specifics. Yeah, that's that's very. Uh, I think that's very helpful. And it might. I mean, one way that we could go sort of into the specifics is one of the difficult things that a lot of people have when reading Augustine. Um, it was actually one that uh, John Calvin had. So in uh, John Calvin's commentary on John, he says that Augustine is obsessively concerned with Plato. Um, and uh, and and you know, this is sort of funny way that he has the to chastise um, Augustine, and he and he's very cautious um, about when he deploys Augustine uh, favorably um, when when he's you know trying to exegete scripture because he he Augustine uses a more allegorical at times interpretation and so that's one of the things that that comes up in your book is this uh, de different uh, difference between literal and allegorical and even in our conversation you mentioned that first time that that Augustine um, hears from Ambrose um, in in Confessions book six uh, he says uh, that Ambrose taught him that the letter kills but the spirit gets life uh, gives life and mm. this sounds a little little bit like origin maybe that may have been where Ambrose got it uh, but but it's also Paul of course um, so so how does Augustine's um, understand the allegorical uh, versus the literal and um, you know what what how can we um, maybe um, read him favorably, uh, but also is, is there a need for caution in that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, the brief picture that, that, especially for those listening to this who may not be fam too familiar with Augustine uh, yet, that maybe it'd be helpful is Augustine does start with an allegorical commentary on Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. He doesn't actually... And then, he's, and then he moves to a literal that he doesn't finish, and then he's got a, a final literal commentary. And so um, of those three commentaries, you see some changes there. And some people have construed that so that Augustine is kind of finally rejecting allegorical interpretation when he moves to his literal commentary. The problem is, and there's a great book about this called Augustine's Changing Interpretations of Genesis 1 through 3, uh, published in 2006, where uh, it's basically showing how complicated this is because when Augustine advocates for a literal reading of Genesis, he still is using allegorical interpretation as well. So his conception of a literal meaning can incorporate or can involve allegorical interpretations in which he's, you know, and he basically says, you know, for example, at one point he says, go interpret the text literally when you can, but if you can't, allegorically. <laughs> now, part of what's so tricky about Augustine is, you know, he didn't have a good editor, so he'll say something like that. And a few pages later, he'll say something different, and he won't go back and fix that. So, uh, but um, basically, by literal, Augustine doesn't mean uh, literalistic. He do, He's not referring to a, a particular literary manner of expression. What he means is um, having historical reference. So he is, he is distinguishing literal and allegorical in that sense. He's so a literal commentary is not one that, for example, tries to read all the, you know, tries to take out um, symbolical meanings or metaphorical language or something like that. Uh, so in his literal commentary, it's actually, he still has a lot of hermeneutical flexibility to appreciate, you know, pictures, word pictures and figures of speech and so forth. Uh, figurative language, for example. Um, so, for example, in Genesis 1, he's, he doesn't think that it's a, a literal account in the sense of it's, you know, 
actual 24-hour days sequential. He thinks it's an instantaneous creation. He'd be kind of in a framework view camp where he thinks it's uh, portraying God's work of creation in terms of a human work week. But he doesn't think it's uh, literal in that sense. By literal, he just means it happened in history. Um, it's, it's what actually occurred as opposed to drawing a, a spiritual connection between the details of the text and a spiritual reality. So that's what he means by literal. Um, I do think he favors that interpretation. That's kind of his final approach. But again, that doesn't mean he, that he excludes figurative language or, or allegorical interpretation in the process of his, so of his, of his commentary. So his views are very complicated on this. It's, it's easy to, to misconstrue. I mean, in fact, a lot of the secondary literature, I think, does m misunderstand him on this point as though he's sort of rejecting allegorical when he gets to the literal. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, and some of my background uh, in, and what I did when I was like reading Augustine was looking at his rhetorical context. Um, and so even thinking about like the way that he was trained and the way that even Origen and some of the other uh, church fathers were trained was to look at literally the letter, right? So literal comes from the letter. Um, and, and part of what you had to do before, while you were interpreting a text was you had to figure out what each letter meant. Um, and so how that specifically told a story and the scope and, um, you know, so the literal could just mean what is going on at the level of the story, what is going on at the level of even the letter. So like what each word means. And so allegorical was sort of the highest um, kind of interpretation. So for for origin, that's where he ultimately wants to get to, uh, because the literal is only so interesting and so helpful for so long. Um, and, and some uh, I. You know, some people uh, have said that that this is the difference between the Alexa so-called Alexandrian school and the so-called um, Antiochene school, and really they're they're less antagonistic and more just different sort of stages in the kind of interpretation that's going on. Um, anyway, I think that could be, you know, one thing to think about with, with these as well. And what I love about Augustine is Augustine doesn't easily fit either one of these. Um, so in some sense, Augustine can look like uh, a more literal reader and he tries to be, and at other times he can be as allegorical in a way as, as even Origen can. So it's one of those fun things and, and difficult things about Augustine is where exactly does he fit? Hmm. In, in my mind, but yeah, um, yeah, very good. Um, so let's see, there's a few, you know, a few different things, uh, that, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, one of them is, um, you, you brought, you brought this up earlier that creation was made with an end in mind. And, and in the Latin word, uh, it is, uh, the, like, um, imperfect and perfect have this sense of movement, incompletion and completion. Um, and it seems, uh, I, I sort of take this a little bit from uh, a guy called Owen Barfield, um, but he really emphasizes the difference between um, moderns tend to look at creation and look at the world like modern scientists. And for the modern scientist, everything has to be at rest. You have to stop and you have to absent yourself uh, from the thing. And then you look at it from a, from a fixed point of view. Uh, but he would say that the ancients see everything in, and they're even themselves in the process of moving along with things. So one of the questions that I had is very asked was a very broad one um, about this notion of movement for Augustine. And and you already touched on it a little bit, but but how important uh, you know? Could you speak to how important this idea is that that uh, things are um, never really at rest until they are at, in God? And and this sort of like idea that his ontology, his way of seeing the world and the things that are, is that they are are always kind of in motion actually mm. yeah i you know the big picture is just as as you've put it uh explained it uh so well is creation is at rest in the sense of it hasn't reached its final terminus or goal uh one of the uh metaphors i just came up with trying to help my own mind wrap around this is thinking of a piece of pottery that's been constructed but it hasn't gone through the glazing and firing stages that make it actually uh, sort of permanent and usable. So it's not yet completed. And 
it's in one sense it's been completed it's been shaped but it hasn't gone through the final stages of completion where it's actually reached the goal that it has and augustine does think of the world so far as i understand him um even apart from the entrance of evil like that it's it's uh not yet at rest so he so for augustine god is sort of the infinite reference point for everything else so god's immutability is the goal we want to get to share in his immutability in some way like the angels do in his mind um it's a, a derivative kind of uh, uh, immutability for us but nonetheless he thinks we can kind of share in that in some way so one uh, just read a little quote here from his literal commentary where he kind of fleshes this out he says the whole universe of creation has one terminus in its own nature another in the goal which it has in God. It can come to no stable and properly established rest except in the quiet rest of the one who does not have to make anything to get beyond himself to find rest in it. And for this reason, while God abides in himself, he swings everything, whatever, that comes from him back to himself like a boomerang so that every creature might find in him the final terminus and goal for its nature. And uh, he, he ultimately, uh, by the way, the translator there, Edmund Hill, added that boomerang imagery. <laughs> I remember when I first read that, I thought, wow, I didn't know they had boomerangs in uh, Augustine's day. But, uh, he's, but it's a helpful image because he's saying God creates things, but he, he then, you know, one commentator uses the imagery of creation having a conversion torque, meaning it's sort of got this built-in tendency toward being, needing to be converted back to God. So um, again, it's a fascinating way to look at the world, and it um, it does have implications then for how Augustine thinks of sin and what that changes to our creaturely status, and then redemption and what redemption consists of as well. Yeah, that's helpful. The um, well, sometimes Edmund Hill is really good, and he, man. I don't know that anyone has translated as much of the church fathers as Edmund Hill. Um, that, that guy is tireless. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, sometimes he, he does add a little bit of his own on there. Um, but uh, I was thinking, you know, and you use the word there, which is also helpful, but even for Augustine, uh, con conversion, you know, comes from the Latin for to turn. Um, and then sometimes there's this word that'll come up uh, in in the New Testament, conversatio, um, uh, anastrophe in the Greek. But is it for Augustine, like our, like even conversion, that idea of like converting towards God is a turning towards. Um, so like, what what is it to become a Christian? Well, it's to turn towards God. Um, and that is like, again, this idea of like always in, in movement and at rest. And for Augustine, you're either moving towards God or moving away from God. Um, and, and the creation is kind of doing the same thing. Creation is either moving back towards um, its source or moving away in the opposite direction. There kind of is no in between for Augustine. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and isn't it interesting that, you know, even... Today, when we think of conversion, we would almost exclusively use that word in the sense of a spiritual or, or moral conversion, which, of course, Augustine also believes in. But it seems as though, to me, he's talking about a broader conversion as well, almost a, an ontological conversion or something like that, where, you know, just by virtue of being a creature, because Augustine thinks God is the source of all being. So the only way that something can remain in existence is by abiding in God. And the only way it can have a kind of final permanent uh, existence is kind of abiding in God's rest in a, in a, in a sense. And so the, that whole way of thinking, I think, is just a, broad, a broader approach to creation than uh, sometimes Christians even, even, even consider today. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, and one thing that you bring out, another thing that I found really uh, helpful in this work uh, was your sort of emphasis on humility in Augustine. Um, so could you talk a little bit about like how you saw humility in Augustine's doctrine of creation um, and, and, and how that could be sort of beneficial for, for uh, readers today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So um, this is something that really struck me. I didn't expect it um, because often Augustine is not thought of as a very humble person by, by everyone. Um, but I really did sense uh, humility in the sense of uh, 
just this, for example, in his biblical commentaries, how, how frequently he will navigate in terms of probabilities and admit his uncertainties rather than sort of stake out one view and say this is right, much more so than modern biblical commentaries to my mind. Uh, in addition to that, he'll often raise a point and not answer it, but simply raise it for the sole reason of uh, discouraging rashness. That's a word he's constantly returning to throughout his commentaries. He's constantly saying, you know, it could be this, it could be that, but whatever you think, just don't be rash about it. And he says that about uh, our interpretation of scripture, but he also has that with regard to how we interface with what we would call in our context, science. Um, obviously, Augustine predates the scientific revolution by about 1500 years, but he does deal with things that we would think of in the realm of science, things that we would call like geology and astronomy and things like that. He's interested in those subjects. He studies them. And he shows a lot of humility, I think. Uh, for example, there's the famous passage in his literal commentary that's uh, towards the end of book one where he it's basically a rebuke for anti-scientism. He's basically saying Christians should not just dismiss genuine knowledge from the realm of general revelation. And it's a famous passage, rightly so. And in my book, I try to talk about how I think that's a structurally significant passage for his literal commentary. Um, and it's central to the, to the interests of the whole book. Um, but he does have that, that sensitivity because he's seen the damage that it can do. And this is, again, is where I think he's so relevant today. He, I would say that, and I think this is fair to him, that when Augustine thinks that a, a claim from general revelation, something we might call a scientific claim, has good evidence in support of it, he basically never says to disregard it or to reject it. He is always wanting to try to harmonize that claim with what he believes theologically and, and biblically. That's not to say he'll never, ever oppose a, a scientific claim. But again, when he thinks there's good reasons for it, he's, he's very deferential to that. And I just think that's interesting because he's such a heavy-hitting theologian to see that willingness to be careful like that and the sensitivity to that, I, I think is, I, I think that's instructive to us today. Yeah, and that's also one of the things that can be difficult, uh, again, for sort of uh, at least the way that I was sort of raised to read scripture sometimes as if there was only one way to read it. So uh, part of what he's willing to do with the Genesis accounts is talk about, uh, and I think this comes out a lot in confessions um, and a little bit in De Doctrina, uh, in on Christian teaching, uh, but, but where he's willing to countenance and allow for different interpretations of a passage, which may or may not necessarily accord with Moses, uh, but there's a kind of humility in his reading of scripture and his reading of the world and of science. Hmm. So it, it, it's a sort of interesting way to, to think about that, that humility, um, even when coming to the scriptural text, uh, that you don't necessarily know that your interpretation is the right one. Exactly right. And, and you know, I think with that, Augustine is not saying that the scripture is uh, fallible. He does uh, have a very high doctrine of Scripture as uh, authoritative and infallible, and um, but he he's I would see his his carefulness more in the realm of how he functions as an interpreter. He puts a lot of emphasis upon interpreting Scripture uh, in the in the broader context of the church with 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 charity towards other Christians to value their contributions as opposed to a kind of private interpretation. Um, he does think that if we simply reject the scripture, that that also is rashness and is a kind of arrogance. Um, but he's very careful to say, he's very, he's very shrewd. He says so often when we defend our interpretation of scripture, we're, we're defending us, <laughs> not the scripture. Um, and and uh, we're, we're actually not showing humility before it because we're importing our ideas onto the text rather than subordinating our interests to the interests of the text and saying, the Bible may not answer my question. He has a very robust sense of the limitations of scripture in the sense that 
there are questions that it doesn't address and that we can bring to the text that are outside of its purview of interest. And so that's very relevant today. I mean, I, I, you know, I also kind of grew up thinking the Bible was this sort of encyclopedia. You just pick, open it up and it'll tell you everything. And Augustine's very, he has a lot more hermeneutical uh, care and restraint than that. Yeah. That's that's that seems right to me. And one of the things that you bring up occasionally, and uh, in in the book, and and that Augustine uh, mentions especially in, uh, I guess it's book one probably of on Christian teaching, but is the rule of faith. Um, so you know the interesting thing about Augustine is as much as he can uh, countenance some and and uh, sort of admit for uh, different readings of scripture, he's very clear about some certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know sometimes the rule of faith is defined in a few different ways. It's kind of, sometimes it's not a hundred percent clear exactly what uh, Augustine is after in that, but, but usually, you know, it, it includes the sort of Nicene and apostles creed and sort of the standard things of the faith that no one should get wrong. Like who Jesus is, how Jesus is re- related to, uh, or how Jesus is understood in the Trinity and these sorts of things. So on the one hand, Augustine can say there are some bits that are kind of, uh, open for a, a little bit of discussion, but then there are others uh, that that there's no discussion. You must love God, you must love neighbor, and you must sort of have these sort of guideposts uh, uh, to help you along in your reading. Exactly right. And, and that's why I think Augustine is not saying that humility is this kind of wishy-washiness. You know, you just kind of are open on everything. And uh, he, he's he's not vulnerable to that concern, I don't think, because when we're inside the rule of faith, he thinks it is rashness and arrogance to to question things. Uh, he thinks that that's out of bounds. And so um, it's not that he's just generally open to things. It's when we're navigating on more peripheral matters outside the rule of faith. That's where he, he really emphasizes, be careful, uh, make sure you've done your homework, Make sure you're listening to other views and so forth. That's where he's most careful. Yeah, I think that's that, that's exactly right. And and that like one of the questions I had was about um, other ways that Augustine uh, talks about humility. But one thing that in at my dissertation, I looked a lot at uh, the virtue of humility in Augustine's preaching. Uh, but one thing that gets hard when you start talking about Augustine and humility is he he gives a really precise definition of pride, uh, but he's never as precise about humility. Hmm. Um, and so you kind of as you do in your chapter on humility, you have to kind of look for it in different ways. And one of the things that I feel like Augustine highlights well in Confessions is this idea of sort of submission and dependence. And like, and maybe this brings in sort of all of Augustine's reading of scripture as we've, as we've been talking about, um, is that Augustine is always trying to push his readers to their own engagement with God. Like to me, the end for Augustine always is how do I see, how do I learn more about the Trinity through this? How is this God speaking to me? Um, and me encountering God through these words. And so it's never like about trying to get the right interpretation, like you say, to sort of hold up your own views. But the the goal is a person. Um, The goal of reading is encounter. Um, And so I think that that can sort of help in this humility is you're you're trying to submit yourself to uh, God in uh, in your reading, even of scripture, Um, and you're dependent on God. So reading scripture is as much a spiritual exercise as it is sort of an intellectual one to come out with the, the sort of right thinking on every issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't that fascinating that Augustine is interested in the process and not just the result? And um, I, I resonate with your thoughts about the difficulty of defining humility precisely. I don't even know if humility is the exact right word for everything I'm, I'm after in this chapter on the topic in chapter two. The way I define it is... Um, an eager pursuit of the truth through all the means God has provided and a ready willingness to admit what we do not yet know in the process. And that's kind of a practical or functional definition for just what I'm observing, especially in the interplay between science and faith. But I just find it so fascinating the way, you know, a a signature move of Augustine is uh, name an issue, canvas four different interpretive options, say, I don't think it's one, 
It definitely isn't two. It could be either three or four, so take your pick, but just don't be rash about it. <laughs> and I love that. You know, he's just, he doesn't have to close every question. He doesn't have to complete every uh, thought. He's happy to leave some things open-ended, again, when it's outside the rule of faith. Um, and I, I do find a kind of honesty there that, that is refreshing. Yeah, that's very helpful. Well, um, I think we're we're kind of drawing to a close here. Um, so one of the one other thing that I wanted to bring up, and I don't know, this has become something of a running theme on the podcast. Um, I guess because of my own interest, because I did spend some time in in church work, and um, is is the the fact that like, and and part of even my emphasis on what I was writing about, what I've written about Augustine, is the fact that he's a pastor. Um, and so something that I think often people forget about Augustine, they read him as the sort of philosopher theologian who writes the city of God and writes the confessions um, and all these commentaries on Genesis, but he's a pastor, right? So he spends uh, as much or more of his time uh, with his, uh, his, his congregation in Hippo and, and sometimes in Carthage, uh, but, but his congregation is in Hippo. But one of the things that comes out is Augustine will mention some of the things about creation in his, uh, in his sermons, but like his big works on in his preaching comment, uh, well, his big preaching works are on the Psalms are on the gospel of John. Um, and then even in the, um, collection that's called the sermons to the people, he doesn't really spend as much time on the doctrine of creation as you might think, uh, given how much he writes about it in other contexts. So any thoughts about why that, that might be the case. And then as a kind of follow up, uh, you know, how do you preach on the creation and, and how has your writing on the creation from Augustine's point of view, how has that impacted how you interact with your own uh, congregation through preaching and other things? Mm. Well, for the first part of your question, I, I'm confident that you could give a better answer to that than, than I could based upon your research and Augustine's preaching. The only, I, I don't have enough uh, of a sort of uh, set of data to, to know how frequently he preaches on creation. But what's uh, it struck me that he does preach on it. And I was surprised at, at sometimes when in his sermons on creation, just the sheer exuberance of what he has to say, he'll just goes on and on about the beauty, you know, the, the loveliness of the flowers and the beauty of the clouds and the, the hugeness of whales. And <laughs> it's kind of, again, it's fun to see him reveling in it uh, in that way. Um, in terms of why he didn't preach more frequently on creation, uh, despite writing so much on it, I, my, the only thing I can offer is a guess, and that is that there were certain theological challenges with creation that led to him uh, writing so much about it. So it's coming up in Confessions, it's coming up in City of God, he's writing these commentaries, it's, it, other works as well, uh, it comes up in a lot. Um, because of certain theological questions that he has that may not be as forceful in a pastoral context. You know, some of the things we've actually already mentioned, uh, apologetic-type concerns with regard to the Manichaean criticisms, the larger vision of creation that he has. And I think he never got over his own process with Genesis 1 and, and just the turn that he went through when hearing Ambrose preach. At one point in the book, I say I compare creation for Augustine to justification for Luther and divine transcendence for Bart, in that it's this kind of doctrine that is just deeply personal for a theologian because of their own particular narrative, and it constantly comes up for them. But uh, for my own preaching, I think Augustine has helped me tremendously. One is by broadening me, just the, the, the sheer scope of creation. Uh, I now would, with Augustine, see it as a more practically and emotionally relevant doctrine to just everyday life. And then I would say Augustine has been a moderating voice and a calming voice for the anxieties that I've personally gone through uh, and that I want to help others go through as a minister in terms of science, faith type issues. I've just found Augustine giving me breathing space. Here we have one of the more conservative and, and significant influential theologians, perhaps the most influential theologian in all of church history, East or West. And yet, on questions like uh, some of the things I talk about in the book, questions of evolution, Adam and Eve, animal death, the days of Genesis 1, he's uh, more open in his posture or attitude 
and his views wouldn't fit into the narrowest of those that are on the spectrum today. And I just find that kind of refreshing, and I find it eases some of the anxiety in the process. Even if we don't agree with him on everything, it gives us some breathing room. Well, I, I just have to add this as a little plug for um, – I'm not really sure when it will air. It might might be after, might be before, uh, but I interviewed Philip Carey on his book, The Meaning of Protestant Theology, and he deals a lot with the anxieties that Luther has. Um, he sources a lot of him in Augustine, uh, so <laughs> it's sort of funny to hear you uh, talk about Augustine uh, sort of solving, as it were, some some anxieties that you had uh, because uh, apparently in, in Carey's reading of Luther, uh, Augustine created some anxieties and sort of Augustine's interpretation in the medieval world. So maybe not as much uh, Augustine directly, but it was just sort of interesting. I don't, I don't know if you've read uh, Philip Carey's book, but I, I highly recommend it. Hmm. I haven't read it, but I can, I can well imagine how Augustine can create anxieties as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and anyway, so it's a it's a, it is a good uh, it's a really good read, and Philip Carey is a really um, good commentator on Augustine. He wrote three large books um, that uh, I had to sort of sift through uh, for my for my some of my research, and and I always find him a very good person to interact with uh, because he did uh, philosophy and has that kind of um, almost more analytic. Uh, well, he doesn't call himself an analytic, but but he has that that's way of a philosopher for precision, um, and so he really gets you down to brass tacks. I'm definitely going to have to take a look at that. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, this has been great. Um, uh, I guess I, I don't know if I don't really know you that well. I'll call you uh, Dr. Ortland or Gavin. I don't know where what you prefer to go by, but either one is, um, but it's been great having you on. The <laughs> okay. Very good. Um, well, it's been a pleasure having you. on. The okay. Um, well, Gavin, it's been a pleasure having you on the on the podcast um, and talking through uh, this with you. And I I realize as uh, as I was finishing up here, we didn't talk about all the different things that your book covers. So hopefully, this will be a, a sort of supplementary conversation where you know it can encourage people to still go to the book to see uh, sort of how you deal with some of the things like original sin, the days of creation, which we only you know, you only briefly mentioned really. Um, so I may, I like to see this as a conversation, you know, that's launched by the book, uh, but it's not just a recapitulation there because uh, you definitely should go read it. Um, it, it, I learned a lot from it and uh, I really appreciated your careful investigation. Hey, thanks a lot. And yeah, I really appreciate that. It's been, this has been a really uh, great discussion because your questions are, are so thoughtful about it. So thanks for the chance to interact a little bit here. This has been our conversation with Dr. Gavin Ortland. Um, we thank you for listening, and please do rate us, review us on iTunes. See you in, uh, see you in a couple weeks.